This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for October 29th, 2020. The EU is considering Apple's ad tracking policies, more rumors about Apple making its own search engine, plus quantum computing and how it might crack passwords faster than ever. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm fine. We changed our clocks a week ago and you didn't. So we're doing this at a slightly different time. I wish they'd get rid of this daylight saving time thing. It's always so confusing. Oh, yeah, especially when we're coordinating across so many time zones. So we we have, uh, of course, Kirk's in the UK. I'm in California. And then our podcast producer is uh, is on the East Coast. So we've got people from all over the place, <laughs> all in different time zones. And then daylight saving time happens at different times for us. So it's it's crazy. And you just got off a meeting with people in other countries in Europe and elsewhere. It, it is kind of interesting, you know, think back. 20 years, early days of the internet, and, and the first steps toward this sort of thing, when people did predict this kind of distributed working around the world and this sort of communication. And I remember the early days of Wired Magazine, there were all these, you know, tech utopia ideas coming through, but it really is, it's gotten really simple to be able to do this. Yeah, actually, it, w- with the one exception of daylight saving time, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> a couple of times a year, kind of throwing things off. Uh, it's actually it's not too bad as most of the time you can, uh, you know, look up on your uh, on your iPhone clock app. You can uh, have it set up to show you multiple time zones at a time. You can also ask Siri, you know, what time is it in this place? Um, it seems like most of the time that's accurate, although uh, once or twice I've actually had it uh, give me incorrect information about what the time is somewhere else. So even that's not necessarily 100% reliable, unfortunately. I use a number of different faces on my Apple Watch, and one of them is called Solar. And you can see through the day um, as it gets lighter and darker. And last week, one day, it might have been Sunday, just after the time changed, I went and looked to see what time sunset was and it said it was i believe 1759 so one minute to 6 p.m but sunset was really like 1640 like 10 minutes to five and a couple days later it was showing the right time but that day it seemed like maybe it got stuck or it got confused because it wasn't just an hour off it was like an hour and 12 minutes off which was kind of strange yeah that's really bizarre Okay, so we've got a little bit of news today. Um, one of them is, and and this is, I kind of guess it's expected, but the ad industry is going after Apple for their requirement, which was supposed to start with iOS 14, but which has been pushed back for a few months, that apps will have to get permission from users to collect their random advertising identifier. Um, advertisers use this to track uh, their ad campaigns, to make personalized ads, etc. There's an antitrust complaint in France about this, arguing that the enhanced privacy measures would be anti-competitive. Now, there's a couple of things here. We've talked about this feature in the past, uh, saying that it's going to improve privacy. Couldn't you say that any 
feature to improve privacy is going to be anti-competitive in some way. Anything Apple does to protect their users is going to compete with the advertising industry, isn't it? Well, I, I guess I guess it depends. Like what what it seems like they're saying is that well, Apple's allowed to track you in certain ways. And they're preventing other companies from being able to track you in certain ways. And so I think it's it, it, maybe that's why they're saying that this is anti-competitive. But um, I mean, privacy is something that a lot of consumers actually want and they, they want to have control over things like this. Um, so it, it absolutely makes sense from my perspective that Apple would implement a feature like this, even if it's going to you know, not please certain other companies that are, that make their money based on tracking users and tracking what they're doing. I I don't know. I don't know that anti-competitive necessarily makes sense. Well, that's a big concept in the EU level playing field. For instance, I think in most European countries, maybe it might be EU wide, you can't sell anything at a loss. So they call that dumping. Um, if Apple was selling their iPhone for 500 euros instead of 1,000 euros to undercut Samsung or other companies, that would be illegal. You can't sell at a loss. So the, the, the idea of competitive and anti-competitive is a more European than, than an American thing. Uh, in America, it would be antitrust. You've got a monopoly or you've got excessive power in the marketplace. Um, but the anti-competitive is a lot more... There's a lot more wiggle room there. By the way, the thing that we're talking about, um, they, they have a screenshot in this uh, Mac Rumors article of what this is going to look like. And they give the example of uh, the app name. Uh, this is a dialog box that pops up uh, or that will eventually pop up in iOS 14 sometime early next year, they say. Um, it says, app name would like permission to track you across apps and websites owned by other companies. And then in finer print, your data will be used to deliver personalized ads to you. And then you can either tap allow tracking or ask app not to track. So that's that's what this is supposed to eventually look like. And of course, like, why would anybody say, yeah, sure, allow tracking? That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, well, it is very well explained. It's, it's actually a lot more complex than that, but it is explained quite well. So I don't know. I just see that, yes, we're going to lose revenue because we've been tracking people borderline illegally um, and Apple wants to stop us. And and. The, the fact that they've done this in France, which has more of a record of going against anti-competitiveness, um, shows that maybe they couldn't get away with it in the States. I, I think that the way the European Union works is if France ruled against it, I think all the other EU countries would follow that ruling, but this still wouldn't affect the US. Anyway, we'll see. Uh, in terms of competition, an article in the New York Times uh, a couple days ago uh, called Apple, Google, and a Deal that Controls the Internet. This reminds us of an episode we did in September asking, what if Apple made a search engine? Apparently, the Justice Department is targeting a secretive partnership that is worth billions of dollars to both Apple and Google. And the New York Times article says that um, Google pays Apple somewhere between 8 and $12 billion to be the default search engine on Apple device. Now, I think we were banding about the $8 billion figure uh, in that episode in September, uh, and now everyone on the internet's just citing the $12 billion. We don't know if it's 8 or 12 and that's a 50% difference from 8 to 12 but that's still a huge amount of profit for Apple. The real question here is, and we discussed this back in September, if Apple's all about privacy and they wanted to make a search engine, for example, that uh, enhanced user privacy, well, then why are they selling us to Google? 
Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's eight to 12 billion reasons why <laughs> they're selling us to Google, I guess. But, um, I mean, for one thing, I think, um, Apple does not currently have a search engine. And, and of course that, that was one of the things we talked about back in September was, you know, maybe Apple should, or, or maybe they would want to create a search engine of their own. Um, but because they don't, it kind of makes sense in a, in a way for them to to partner with a, a company that you know wants to um, make their search engine more popular and um you know uh, google's certainly got the money they they're willing to spend billions of dollars in order to get their search engine as the default on a bunch of apple devices so um you know i i, I can't fault apple too much for that i guess i i think um, what they what they could do, and, and if if Apple wanted to really say we care about privacy so much that we're we're going to skip the opportunity to have eight to twelve billion dollars just so that we can give you a more private search engine. The problem with that is now they've got to pick what private search engine they're going to use. Is it going to be DuckDuckGo or StartPage or some other, you know, lesser known uh, search engine? And are people going to be happy with the results that they get from those search engines? Uh, Most third-party search engines don't really have results that are the same quality that you would expect from Google. I mean, Google's, this is like their main thing that they've been doing for a long time. This is their, their main product. And How long has Google been around as a search tool? Google's been around a long time. They they launched in 1996 on Stanford's network, and then they formally incorporated their company as Google in 1998. Um, so they've been at this for a very long time. By the end of 98, they had a, an estimated 60 million pages indexed. So they already were well into the game um, already by the end of 98. So, so this is a long time that they've been in this. It's game. a long time, and they've built up a lot of um, know-how about how to index and how to organize. And, of course, the algorithm manipulates the search results to provide ads, and that's one of the big problems. Um, I, I want to just mention an article that was in MacRumors today. MacRumors is reporting on a Wall Street Journal article that said Apple is stepping up efforts to develop alternative to Google search. And, oh, listen to this. In a little-noticed change to the latest version of the iPhone operating system, iOS 14, Apple has begun to show its own search results and link directly to websites when users type queries from its home screen. Um, You know what? That's called Siri suggestions, and that's been at least three or four years that it's been in iOS (laughs) and in Safari on the Mac. And I think someone in the Wall Street Journal um, just found that this was on by default instead of off by default in the past. It's not new in iOS 14, and this doesn't suggest anything about Apple's search engine. But um, there have been rumors, and that's why we did an episode in September. There have been rumors about an Apple search engine. The other possibility is that they buy DuckDuckGo. Who knows? Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about something really interesting. Quantum computing. You already know that Intego loves Macs. After all, Intego has been making world-class Mac security software since 1997. But did you know that Intego Antivirus is also available for Microsoft Windows? If you've got Windows running on your Mac either in Boot Camp or in a virtual machine like Parallels, VMware, or VirtualBox, make sure to protect it from malware just like you protect macOS with Intego Security Software. 
Intego Antivirus for Windows is also a great solution for your friends and family members with Windows PCs. Download a free trial of Intego Antivirus for Windows today, and when you're ready to buy, use the link in the show notes for a special discount. Don't use Windows? Don't worry. We've still got a great deal for you. First-time buyers of Mac Premium Bundle X9 can get Intego's powerful Mac security and utility suite at an incredible 40% savings by using coupon code PODCAST20 at checkout. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac and now for Windows, too. Okay, quantum computing. A few weeks ago, Josh asked me to look into how quantum computing will affect computer security and passwords. And wow, this is fascinating. I I must say that I'm a fairly intelligent person. And whenever I read something about quantum mechanics and quantum computing, um, I have absolutely no idea what's going on. So all that I know is that things can be done much more quickly with computers. Now, you know, if you think back to when you had a pocket calculator, maybe in the 70s or the 80s, what it could do when you think of your first computer. The first computer I ever used, a friend of mine had a Commodore 64 connected to a TV set. You know, these little, these were slow. These were really slow. And when you look now at the kind of things that computers do, and then you imagine a progression that's not just exponential, but more than that, and I'll explain why in a minute. It's obvious that You know, we've talked many times about brute force attacks to crack passwords. And and if you've got like a 14-digit random password, you're pretty safe. But just around the corner are quantum computers. They're going to blow this away and do the kinds of things that now take years, dozens of years, hundreds of years, perhaps just in minutes. Yeah, that's that's the really interesting thing about quantum computing and and where – uh, the the whole computing industry could be really shaken up because the types of encryption that we're using right now uh, largely can be broken very easily using a quantum computer, theoretically. Um, and there have been certain use cases for quantum computers where uh, the computer was designed very specifically to do certain tasks Um, We don't really have anything like a quantum computer that can do all the typical things that we think of when we talk about computing, when we talk about, you know, using a Mac or something like that. Um, Those kind of tasks aren't being done and can't really be done on quantum computers today without developing something that's really sophisticated. Um, And so that, that kind of technology is way in the future. But there have been quantum computers already developed that are designed to do specific tasks at incredible speeds, far faster than any typical processor. Yes, I have an article on the Intego Mac security blog, and I link to a Google blog post where their current quantum computer is, you ready for this, 100 million times as fast as any standard computer. They say that the computer achieved what's called quantum supremacy. I think that's uh, an offshoot of the Born. Uh, movies, <laughs> that it took only 200 seconds to perform a task that would require the world's fastest supercomputer 10,000 years to calculate. 200 seconds, 10,000 years, quantum supremacy, coming to a theater near you. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. By the way, um, this was actually uh, about a year ago that uh, a little over a year ago that Google put up this blog post. So this is something that um, they've had some technology in place already that they've been experimenting with for quite some time at this point. The interesting thing here is, as you said, a quantum computer would have to be designed for specific tasks. It's not a processor with an instruction set that can be used to play video games and display graphics and surf the web. It's very specific mathematical tasks. And the type of task that, let's just say, certain um, intelligence organizations in large countries might want is something to crack passwords. Um, when we talk about cracking passwords, right, when someone's going to try a brute force attack to uh, get into your account, so someone knows your username in your account, and they're going to use a tool, an app, a script, or whatever that's going to enter password after password until it finds the right one. Well, the time it takes to do this is really, really long. And if this can be sped up, then these nation-state actors would be able to access accounts of, well, competing countries be able to get onto networks and uh, get lots of information. I don't think, now you'll correct me, I don't think it would be as simple to use this to encrypt a text. Let's say you've got a a 500-word text uh, that someone has sent that's been encrypted. I don't think it's easy to encrypt that because you don't just find the encryption key, do you? Well, I I think that you you could use quantum computing to to break uh, various kinds of encryption. It wouldn't necessarily have to be just cracking passwords. Um, that that's that's one of the concerns I think is that um, you know uh, you talk in your article a little bit about um, uh, a quantum computer may be able to cr- crack certain encryption that's being used today. A lot of times we use 128 bit or 256 bit key. Um, sometimes we use longer keys depending on the type of encryption that we're doing, um, but those types of keys could be broken actually pretty easily if you had a quantum computer that was designed to target breaking that kind of encryption. So, so that's the thing is like it, it, if it's well designed and if it's targeted to do a particular task, then it can do that exponentially better than, you know, any standard computer could. Okay. Now, I mentioned earlier about, you used the word exponentially, which comes up a lot in this field. Um, I mentioned earlier how computer speed has increased. Everyone's familiar with Moore's Law that says computing power doubles every two years, roughly. I think initially Moore's Law um, had it doubling every 18 months. There was a number of transistors available every 18 months, and then it got modified that raw power doubles every two years. So that means in year one, you've got one, the next year you've got two, the next year you've got four, then you've got eight, et cetera. We're going to now have to learn about Nevin's Law, which suggests that computing power will grow at a doubly exponential rate. So what that means is when you start with one, the next year you have two, then four, then 16, then 256, then 65,536. After 10 years, the increase in speed would be a number so big that I wouldn't even know how to say it. Um, it would be two to the 1024th power. I think this is one of these numbers that's like greater than all the atoms in the universe. Um, so if we get to the point of speed like that, obviously passwords won't work anymore because quantum computers, they're going to trickle down eventually. You know, maybe in 20 years, that MacBook Air you have is going to actually be a MacBook Air with just air in it. And it's going to work so fast, <laughs> you don't even need batteries and you can do everything. So we're going to have to get into other techniques like biometrics or physical devices that you use to to authenticate. 
Well, and actually, one of the things that I could potentially see as a, a use for quantum computing is uh, maybe there could be a quantum computing coprocessor uh, that will show up at some point in consumer grade computers. So it could be something supplemental, like, for example, the T2 chip in Macs, which is supposed to um, add additional security. Of course, if you listen to last week's episode, we talked about how it may actually ruin your security <laughs> because of other things. But um, but there could be a coprocessor, something like that, that for specific purposes may make a Mac like incredibly fast and way better than the competition at certain tasks. Um, so I could even see that being something that eventually gets implemented in consumer computers before we ever get to the point of everybody just has a quantum computer. So maybe that would be because this is a chicken and egg thing. This is a race, right? Um, as quantum computers get faster, we need to be able to use longer keys and longer passwords. But in order to compute those, we need more computing power. So I think the reason we use 128 or 256 bit encryption keys now is that they're good enough. But if we use, let's say, a 2048-bit encryption key, it's not just 10 times as much processing as a 256-bit key. It's probably 10 to the 10th power or some huge number that I couldn't say. Um, so maybe we'll have that sort of chip that will do the processing to prevent the quantum computer from cracking it. Well, so one of the problems here, as you mentioned, there's sort of a chicken and egg problem here. And, and once... Uh, government agencies have enough quantum computers, once they have enough technology in that space to sort of uh, be able to automate cracking things. First of all, I don't think we're going to really hear about it in the public for a while after something like that begins to happen. It may already be happening. Maybe government agencies are already using quantum computing for targeted encryption breaking tasks. The, the one thing that sort of suggests that maybe they're not yet is that uh, governments are are still lobbying for um, you know backdoors and and things like that, which we may we'll probably talk about backdoors at some point in the future. I think uh, so. So maybe they don't have it just yet, but they're definitely working on this technology. They're certainly trying to find ways that they can break encryption, so they don't have to keep harassing companies like Apple, you know, um, to to get into an iPhone that they find encrypted somewhere, for example. The governments are already going to have this technology way before it ever gets into consumers' hands. So they can already, theoretically, in the future, at some point, they will be able to break into accounts, break encryption on drives, and uh, a number of other things way before consumers have the technology to actually secure everything. But, but I mean, think about this. So if if we were going to use quantum technology to make consumer encryption better, then what we would need is for all consumer devices to have quantum computing at the same time, which I mean, that, that can't happen because everybody, you know, would all have to upgrade their phones, all have to upgrade their desktop computers all at the same time, or else you would have incompatibilities. So there's probably going to have to be some overlap period where we have a fallback option or, or it's going to be a very long time before we can really use quantum computing on a consumer level for encryption. Yeah, I think the more advanced biometrics, so we've got Touch ID and Face ID, and, and you've seen in movies that there are other things. There are iris scans and there are handprints and, and all sorts of things. And I think this is 
going to be a way of the future. We should maybe do an episode on that sometime. I think that's kind of interesting. Maybe quantum computing, as I say in the final sentence of my article, will lead to the demise of the password altogether, because we'll just have to find other solutions. Yeah, well, that could very well be. Um, The password has always kind of been a weak point, really, in security. Um, People have a tendency to pick a password they can remember uh, until password managers started to become popular. Um, You kind of, I mean, people typically would have one password that they used everywhere. And, uh, and maybe there would be slight variations because, you know, somebody had a little bit different requirements on what the password must include. But for the most part, a lot of people just use the same password on every service until we started hearing about all these data breaches and password dumps and things like that, that had been happening and finding out that, oh, actually a whole bunch of websites where I've used that password have not been storing my password properly. Instead of storing a hash of my password they're actually storing my password itself. And then that ends up in a data breach. And now people can associate my email address or my username that I used with that site with my password and try that on any unlimited number of other sites to try to break into my other accounts. Um, that that's a really big deal. And, and it's still something that not everybody has picked up on. There's still so many people who unfortunately reuse passwords. And it's worth pointing out that even if someone doesn't have the combination of your username and password, those passwords go into huge databases that can be used in what's called dictionary attacks, where, as I said earlier, um, someone's going to use an app or a script or whatever to try just different passwords. And if if a dictionary, which is basically just a database, a collection of words, has billions of passwords that have been used by someone um, they have more of a chance of finding yours if you've used a password that's been in a data breach, even if it is a secure password. Yeah, well, I suppose that's true. I mean, if if you imagine like the number of people who have taken a a single dictionary word um, or a name, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be something you'd find in like Webster's dictionary. It could be a person's name, um, and then add a birth date or or some other significant year on the end of it in someone's lifetime, um, then there's there's probably so many people who have used that same password. You know, um, Mary uh, 1976, for example, there's probably thousands of people who have used that password because it's not really that unique. I mean, anyone can come up with that as an idea for a password. You know what's going to be a really popular password in the near future? Dodgers 2020. (laughs) Yep, I bet bet you're right. (laughs) Are you a baseball fan? Were you happy to see the Dodgers win the World Series? (laughs) I'm not terribly into sports. My brother, though, is, and he was watching the game last night, so I'm sure he was celebrating at the end of that. Okay. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast the voice of Mac security with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long to get every weekly episode. Be sure to subscribe in Apple podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.